This is uh, what this Wesley stuff Marty keeps talking about uh, for September the 21st. I got the wrong date on that. It's been crazy today. Uh, But I want to remind you again, we're studying John Wesley uh, and his theology and some of his thoughts and ideas. Uh, But we're followers of Jesus. But I do think if you sort of take a a, a fairly objective uh, viewpoint, uh, that you would discover that John Wesley and George Whitfield, Henry Venn, some of these others uh, in England were principal players uh, in the revival that began to sweep uh, all of England, Wales, Scotland, and Ireland uh, in the 18th century. Uh, that some historians have said that the work of Wesley, particularly, uh, because Whitfield had a great preaching ministry, but Wesley uh, determined that those who were awakened had to be put together in small groups. And back next week, we're going to talk about how the what we call the society, the bands, or the society, the class, and the bands operated in uh, Methodist uh, life. And some have suggested that Wesley's contribution there was he not only got people to make a decision for Christ, but because of the highly structured way in which he worked the revival, uh, putting people together in societies, in classes, in bands. So a society would be a group perhaps on the northwest side of Oklahoma City. That would be the Northwest Oklahoma City Society. That society would meet for a large group meeting, and then there would be a class meeting, which would be smaller, and then there would be a band meeting where you would in a group of 10 to 12 people, where you'd really work together and uh, working through that. And so some have suggested that Wesley's organizational skills and abilities to do that was what really um, conserved the results of the revival. Uh, you know, that it's one thing to get people to make a decision. It's another thing to help them grow up and walk and mature and, and live their life out. And so uh, his contribution, both theologically and organizationally, uh, was a, a wonder uh, at that time. And uh, we'll talk about some of that next week uh, or have some of that to talk about. So we're going to talk tonight about holiness. Uh, this is uh, on your handout here. This idea that holiness is the thread or holy love is the thread that go, runs throughout John Wesley's uh, teaching and theology. Holy love is the thread, and, and what we want to talk about now is this kind of final. Remember I said holy love is love that makes distinctions, and holy love is understanding the nature of God. God is holy love. Holy love is an understanding of the nature of sin, that sin is disordered love or misdirected love in Wesley's theology to say. This is the real core of it. It's not just all these activities. Sin, at its essence, is is disordered love. It's uh, got love has gotten uh, out of out of bounds. So God is holy love. Sin is understood as disordered love. The Christian life is understood. This is what we worked on last week as uh, faith working through love. Galatians five six, where Paul says neither circumcision nor uncircumcision matters. Nothing matters, he says, except faith working through love. And so if you want to understand the Christian life with Wesley, you have to understand the Christian life is faith working through love. And then finally, uh, in, this, in this matter, is uh, this idea that really uh, holy love is the thread that runs through all Wesley's theology. So now we're going to get uh, to this matter of holiness. Holiness. And I would say this, and it's on your hand. The final feature of this is Wesley's teaching about holiness. The topic is sometimes referred to as, uh, uh, as, whole, as let me get my reading here, entire sanctification or perfect love. This is some of the language that Wesley uses about holiness. We'll, we'll talk about that. I'm just trying to kind of set the table here. That when he refers to entire sanctification or perfect love, that's Wesley's contribution understanding uh, about this uh, matter about uh, holiness. Now, I would say the teaching was likely the most misunderstood and most resisted teaching in Wesley's theology. Um, if you, again, read and study that era, uh, Wesley's teaching here 
was mostly misunderstood uh, and mostly resisted in Wesley's theology. Uh, if there's one area that is probably the most people are most resistant to, it is Wesley's doctrine or teaching on what you would call entire sanctification or perfect love, um, which is interesting because he was called in by the Bishop Gibson of London uh, because uh, even the Anglican Church was pretty shook up. But Wesley consistently proclaimed this doctrine as the grand depositum and why God raised up the people called Methodist. Wesley, two weeks before he... I'll come back to Bishop Gibson. Two weeks before he died, he wrote a letter uh, to this gentleman, and he had said again that, that the reason that God raised up the people called Methodist was because of this teaching to teach about entire sanctification or perfect love. That's the only reason he said God ever raised him up. And he said, if Methodism or Methodists ever fail to preach and teach this, they'll cease to be any kind of force for God in the world. And so it, it, this is the kind of a centerpiece of, of his theology. Anyway, he, he, he gets called in by the Anglican Bishop of London, Gibson, and um, is, is uh, kind of dressed down about this new revival and all these teachings he's doing because people are are kind of talking about it, and people are shook up, and there's all kinds of discussion. Wesley explains to Bishop Gibson, the Anglican bishop, what he means by entire sanctification and holy love. And the bishop said this. This is recorded uh, in the minutes. That he said, if this is what you mean, then preach this all over the world. If this is what you mean. He'd heard what they thought it meant, and that's why I'm saying it's, it's usually misunderstood. Uh, it's what Wesley actually means by this. And it's often resisted. And so that's teaching. So when, when we get to this point in Wesley's theology, we're in some ways uh, dealing with some of the most controversial pieces of that. So we'll, we'll take some time to deal with that. Um, the reason Wesley made this such an emphasis, and we'll look at some scriptures tonight, if you have your Bible with you. The reason Wesley took this doctrine and thought so seriously is because he had read, he, I said, we know, we knew, Wesley knew and took seriously the scriptures and the startling statement in Hebrews 12, 14. If you got that, somebody read that. It's a startling statement, really. Um, now, again, Wesley's not the only person that took this seriously. We'll talk a little bit about that. Most Orthodox theologians are, take this very seriously. Uh, Wesley took it seriously as well. But there's some questions about how he understands it. So somebody got that for Hebrews 12, 14? Can you read it for us? Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Okay. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Well, you read that and you go, hmm, that's a pretty, pretty startling statement. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Not some, not a few, nobody. And so Wesley reads this startling statement, knows it. And again, there are other Orthodox uh, Christians that, that believe this and, and, and understand that. But Wesley took this seriously and said, what does that mean? How do I understand it? How do I live this out uh, in my life? So we're going to kind of look at that now because I would say that in this statement that's startling, no orthodox theologian doubts this. But there is some discussion about when does that happen and how does it happen and can it happen? Uh, and so that, that's where much of the discussion is. So I think what we ought to start with in this, first of all, are some definitions. Definitions. Uh, words like holy, <laughs> words like this. Uh, let me just read you uh, some of these things. that uh, The word holy uh, that occurs in the Hebrew Bible uh, in lots of places. In fact, you might be interested to know that on the hat, the mitre of the high priest uh, <clears throat> that wore into the temple, uh, on that... Uh, was holiness to the Lord. was right on the front of it. It's kind of a plate that are right on the front of the high priest's hat that said holiness unto the Lord. Uh, when Isaiah sees a vision of God in Isaiah 6, uh, what, is, what are the angels or the seraphim saying? They're saying holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And so this idea or this understanding uh, is, uh, if you will, throughout the Hebrew Bible. Now, the Hebrew word for holy 
Turner is Kodesh. Kodesh. K. You do it Q U O D E S H. Q. That's right. You Kodesh. Q U O D E S H. And uh, the uh, New Testament word that is the carryover from the uh, Hebrew Bible is Hagios. Uh, Hagios. Different versions of that of that term, uh, which both. Uh, are found uh, distinctively throughout uh, the, the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. Now, in its basal, basic form, uh, it means to be set apart or different. Set apart or different. Uh, when it says God is holy, he's set apart. He's different, <laughs> right? And when something is holy in the Hebrew Bible or the New Testament, it's something that's set apart or different. Um, it, it carries the idea of, if you will, a, a special kind of relationship. Uh, because I think it's helpful to understand that in the Hebrew Bible, there's clothing that's holy. It's set apart. Only certain people can wear it. There are people who are holy. They're considered the priesthood, like that there's food that's holy. There are cups and utensils that are holy. Why are they holy? Hmm? They're set apart for a specific use, right? So it may be helpful to understand. So the opposite of holy. When I ask my students, you know, what do they say? It's the opposite of holy, unholy. <laughs> Good guess. That's why I don't give multiple choice, true, false questions. Tomorrow they're getting a test and it's all essay. And uh, they will be moaning and groaning. Yeah, the opposite of holy is common. Some translations in the Hebrew Bible say profane. If something is profane, it is not set apart. It's not unique. It's not, it, it's common. Anybody, anything, anyone. So, the, the utensils that would be in the temple that are hagios are said they can only be used by the priests. If those cups or bowls are used by people in town like that, they become common. Cherem is the, 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 the uh, are, uh, uh, yeah, oh no, chol, C-H-O-L. When you, when you speak Hebrew, it's kind of like spit. Chol, chol, C-H-O-L means common, common. And it has the idea that it is no longer set apart to uh, either some relationship or some location or some situation. Does that make sense? You with me there? It, we, we tend to load it up with a lot of moral ideas first. But it is principally a relational term first. Something is holy because it's been set apart over here. This cup can no, long, no longer be used by anybody. It can only be used by the priest. These clothes can no longer be worn by anything. They can only be worn by these people. And so, this, i give you an example. Uh, my dad, I think I am actually the uh, script for Sandlot. In 1962, my dad stood in line at a Butte dealer in Kilgore, Texas, to see a guy there who was a great baseball player. And my dad stood in line to get a baseball signed by Mickey Mantle. And so my dad comes home with it. He'd stood in line for a long time, and he said, boys, this, ba and I, of course, we knew Mickey Mantle was. We see the ball, and he said, this ball is never to leave this house. You're to put it on your dresser. We had a little stand for it. It's right there. It is now set apart. Now, that was a 99-cent baseball, okay? The baseball wasn't valuable because of what it was. It was set apart because of the signature on it. And it was set apart. Well, you know, one day we we're having a baseball game in my neighborhood. And it was serious. Yeah, yeah, you know the story. I'm not going to tell you. I will tell you. And so we're playing. And we beat the cover off a of baseball. And it was out in the woods somewhere. And somebody says, well, we can't finish it. I said, I did. I know. My dad should have killed me. I said, I got a baseball. Now, 1962, Mickey Mantle had won the batting championship. You know, he was incredible. So we take that baseball that was set apart, holy, 
and beat the cover off of it and lost it. My dad said, where's the baseball? I said, my brother took it. I don't know what happened. (laughs) Now, again, holy is this understanding of set apart. Unique. That's why I think Paul can say to the Corinthians, as messed up as they are, saints, that's the Greek word hagios. Why? They're not perfect, but they're set apart to Jesus Christ. They're not serving the other gods. They're not serving Apollo or Aphrodite. They're set apart to, or either Paul is making fun of them, or he's understanding that, first of all, holiness begins in a relationship. I'm set apart to God. I may not have everything lined out. I may still be learning and growing. So that's one term. Any questions or thoughts on that? No, that's... They had a Mickey Mantle hat today. No. Do they? Yeah, they had it on TV today. Nice. 1961, the year that Roger Maris hit 61 and Mickey Mantle hit 55. $500,000. Just a hat. That's all. That's all. Thanks a lot. Yeah, well, that's your gift. Encouragement. Wow. I know. I know. Nothing much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or um, that's a holiness something mm-hmm. church. Or mm-hmm. what happens to that word? And what does it mean in our in, in church nomenclature mm-hmm. today? Good question. For the recording, what does this you know what does this term mean now? How's it kind of evolved in holiness church? We talk about holiness churches. I don't know what that means. Yeah, it generally means in terms of holiness movement or churches. Churches, in some sense, like Wesley that believed that this doctrine or teaching had been avoided or had not been given the attention that it needed. So there is a holiness movement early in, well, around 1850, 1860, Phoebe Palmer, uh, the Kentucky camp meetings start happening, the Cambridge camp meeting, that these are people saying there's been a lack of emphasis on holiness of life and living. And so that would be where you get the holiness movement. Uh, can't that reach. Would be in response. So, so if I'm part of the holiness movement uh-huh. in the 1860s, I'm concentrated on behavior modification, acting holy. Is that right? That's pretty unkind, but no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think that it is. Would be in response to. I, I think it would be. Re- it was in response. I think if I'm any judge of that, I could be wrong. But the Nazarene Church, the Church of God, which we're a part of. The uh, uh, Church of God uh, General Council that, uh, that uh, Wine Bernarians out of Ohio, Phoebe Palmer in New York, a lady, Hannah Whittall Smith, all of this kind of blossoming a concern over living righteous living in life uh, had come to that. You know, you think about America in the 18th, 19th century, uh, there's a lot of still um, violence, a lot of things going on in the world that, that make this, this message to say, we've got to reinvigorate the church to say, remember, we've got we've to live this life that Jesus called us to. And you would compare that doctrinal position or that movement to a New Testament interpretation or definition of holiness would you juxtapose those two? Or are they the same? Yeah, I, I don't know. I, as a historian, I think I would say, I think the American expression of holiness, uh, and I'm going to talk about this some in Wesley, so I, if I, maybe I can deal with it. I think the American expression of holiness became way too interested in behavior and not enough in motive. Here, here, yes. That... That it was it was all behavior, and it it didn't really attend to the mo. You're gonna make me ask it, but here, Wesley understood that that holiness was perfect love to God, and matter of, the heart. matter of the heart, and and that the heart, if we got that right, if we got that right, that the heart was 
and I'll hope to be able to defend this. If we got that right, behavior will follow. So Wesley's always working from the inside out. I always felt like, and I don't know, I'm, I'm Nazarene, I, I don't know, I, Church of God, I always had the feeling that it was working from the outside in. That there was, I didn't hear a lot about that the motive or the basis for Christian living, say it again, hear it this way. I'll say this later, I'll say it again. Wesley would never accept that holiness was a matter of obedience. Never. Because, yeah. I'll say, I was raised in the Church of Christ and then I went to a Nazarene college. And externally, the behavior that we respected was very similar. Yeah. The underlying theologies were different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. And I know that it sounds like a radical statement, but Wesley would never stand for that obedience is the expression or the, or the, or the ultimate expression of holiness. So Wesley would say the holiness movement adulterated the definition of holiness. Um, <laughs> that's a broad statement. Yeah. Um, I would say this. I, I'll, I'll just... I'll speak. I'll speak to. I'll speak to it from my history with the Church of God. In my judgment, it was from this time because I don't think. I don't think the Church of God is really very Wesleyan. I think we're German Pietists who placed a huge amount of concern, and we worried that people weren't living right, and that if you don't quit doing that, you're not going to go to heaven. And that the emphasis was on behavior. So they butchered the kind of holiness that Wesley. I, I think they missed it. I'm not going to use the word. I'm not going to say butchered. <laughs> I, I, I think they missed. Wesley is driving hard to the hoop. You say this. They asked him one time. They said, "Do you contend for sinlessness?" He said, "I've never contended for it. Ever. I've never contended for sinlessness. My tradition did." Church of God Anderson, we talked about sinlessness was the ultimate expression of holiness. And again, you're pushing me a little further forward, but if that's the case, then you just defined holiness Sorry, by what? No, well, I'm, no, 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 you're going to help. But that what we've done is we define holiness by what we don't do. How do you do that? How do you define something by what you don't do? I didn't sin. Holy, what? A, so, so, so. I think they misunderstood it. I, I think everything Americans touch usually gets messed up, or changed, or or, or adjusted. And so Wesley's strong emphasis on love—that holiness is love—got changed to behavior, and that's where you lost the engine. That's why people were were harsh. I think that's why people were angry. That's why people were judgmental. They weren't being motivated. Let, let me move this forward, okay? Because, so that's, that's one. Uh, the other word that he uses uh, definition-wise is perfect because he calls it perfect love. Perfect. And uh, Wesley, Wesley had trouble with this term with people because they didn't like it. Most people unconsciously add the adjective absolutely to perfect. That's not what the word means. The word means perfect. This word literally means to be full-grown or mature. Full-grown or mature. And it's found all over the New Testament. People say, well, you can't be perfect. Well, John 5, 48, Jesus says you're to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In 2 Corinthians 7, 1, it says, having these promises, let us perfect holiness in reverence to God. Philippians 3, 15 Paul, it's interesting, I think I said that the translators in Philippians 3 will not translate it the way. In Philippians 3.12, Paul says, not that I am already perf- I've already obtained it. You better know what that is. The antecedent to that pronoun. Not that I've already obtained it or already become perfect. But I press on. Everybody quotes that. Go down three verses, when 3.15, when Paul says, as many of us as are perfect... Let us hold on to the doctrine we've got. Mature, complete. Hebrews 6 1. Let us leave the elementary doctrines and go on to perfection. Words maturity, 
Hebrews 7.25, for we have a high priest who will continue forever, who can save us to perfection. Hebrews 7.25, those are right there. So this word has got to be understood, not as some absolute moral completeness, but maturity and growth. So Wesley says, I will not quit using the word, although he had to define it, he had to explain it, he had to go back over it every time he used it. But it doesn't have the same meaning in Greek that it does in English. It just means to be mature and grown up. Maybe this would help. Soren Kierkegaard would always talk about purity. Purity, the Greek word katharizo, means to be unmixed. Unmixed. It's the idea of wine that doesn't have any water in it or a, or a, or a soldier platoon that doesn't have any cowards. And he said purity is really this, to will one thing. To will one thing. To have a desire to, to please and honor God. So, we're going to move. Here we go. So those are some definitions we can kick around some more later. Now, holiness rooted in a clear confidence in Christ's righteousness. This is on your handout, and I just want to read you through this because holiness has to be rooted in Wesley's understanding, if you will, of, God, of Christ's righteousness. Now, read this with me. Here we go. This is his sermon on Satan's devices. He says, The more vehemently that Satan assaults your peace with a suggestion... God is holy, you're unholy. You are immensely distant from that holiness without which you cannot see God. How then can you be in the favor of God? How can you fancy you are justified? That's what the devil's saying. This is Wesley. Take the more earnest heed to hold fast. That's at first blank. Take the more earnest heed to hold fast. Not by works of righteousness, which I have done. I am found in him. I am accepted in the beloved. Not having my own righteousness. That blank, not having. My own righteousness. As the cause, either in whole or in part, of our justification before God. But that which is by faith in Christ, the righteousness which is by of God by faith. Oh, bind this around your neck. Write it on the tablet of your heart. Wear it as a bracelet upon thine arm, as frontlets between thine eyes. I am justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. If a person doesn't have the assurance, the clarity, the understanding Wesley would say that they are saved by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. They will never go on to holiness. They'll be constantly trying to earn their way, constantly trying to make their amends. So he, I think his, he, he's very clear here that whenever we are looking at our life, if we are buffeted by the devil, you're not holy enough, you're not this, you're not that. He says, you just hold on, that not by works of right. So Wesley's not saying work harder, try harder. He's saying, remember how you're right with God. Here's another great quote I read. He says, all fear that we have, unless it's filial, meaning family, like I want to please my father, cuts the root of all desires to please God. Fear cuts the root. And so Wesley is clear in his understanding of this righteousness that we have by faith through Jesus Christ. Romans 4 is a good, good uh, response there, a good, good resource to that. I'm going to move on because I want to get to the <clears throat> meat of this. Holiness is understood as, as full salvation. <clears throat> Holiness is understood as full salvation. Wesley often uh, would speak... Um, to the, to the notion that salvation isn't, he said, crudely known as having your sins forgiven so you can go to heaven. That's what some people think. That, that, that salvation is, okay, my sins are forgiven and I'm going to heaven. No, it, it's more than that. It's this understanding of full <coughs> salvation. Um, a friend of mine, we, we taught together for a while, and this is kind of a graph or a understanding how Wesley understood the Christian life. Prevenient grace... <coughs> is really God's grace. We talked about that earlier. That's kind of the porch where we <coughs> first begin. And then justifying grace is the door of faith 
But the goal is to get in the house. And the house is the house of holiness. That holiness isn't some, if you will, advanced kind of salvation for some and not for others. Or it isn't some kind of unique experience for a select few. It is salvation to the extent that we come into this understanding of this full salvation. Wesley would say it, this full salvation of hope is restoring the moral image of God. Restoring the moral image of God in one's life. Restoring the moral image of God. What happened in the fall? Human beings sinned and they lost the moral image of God. The moral image, he would say, is God's righteousness and love. That our love has been so distorted and affected by that, that our hearts and minds are completely affected in understanding. So he's think, he believes that holiness isn't, again, just a, an, an extra add-on. You know, It is salvation, holiness of life. This being set apart to God, this, that's what salvation is. I, I'm not sure people have that understanding. I think, I think most people have a tendency to think that salvation is me getting my sins forgiven and I'm going to heaven. But what's it say? No, that, that's not salvation. That's the entrance into it. My sins are forgiven. I'm justified by grace. My sins are forgiven. I'm going to heaven. But that is now the entrance into the house here, or the full experience, what Wesley would call holiness. Um, so salvation for Wesley was holiness, restoring this moral image of God. This is that passage in Hebrews 7.25. If you got your Bibles open there, go to this, this idea, Hebrews 7.25. My Bible, let's see here. It's on 11.48. Go to your table of contents. Always use that. Hebrews 7, somebody read that for us. Uh, actually, if you would, just for the context, 7.23 to 25. Furthermore, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able for all time to save those who approach God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Thank you. Notice there in verse 25, therefore He is able to save forever. Does your Bible have a footnote? By any chance on forever? 20, verse 23? Mm-hmm. Completely. Huh? Completely. Yeah, this is the word perfectly. This is the word perfect. That this salvation, this experience with Jesus as this priest who doesn't die, who lives forever, who remains in his priesthood, he is able to save completely. Not just that my sins are forgiven, I'm going to heaven, but to save completely, to bring holiness of heart and life to bear in my life. So this understanding of full salvation, D, Holiness is demonstrated in love. Now, this is where I want us to to really spend some time. Uh, I have a quote there on there um, from Wesley that that holiness is understood, if you will, or demonstrated in love. Wesley believed that God's love could heal, organize, and restore one's affections. Remember what is what is sin? Disordered love. This is what's got to get fixed. Not just your behavior, not just your actions, but this disordering of what I love. And so Wesley believed that God love could heal, organize, and restore one's affections to love God supremely with a perfect, purified motive and love to one's neighbor. Now this is an audacious statement. But the idea that God's love could heal us. Wesley was a pretty affected. Um, you know, if, if you look at the church after 10, what's 10, 
I can't remember the date exactly, uh, when the Western Church and the Eastern Church split over the Trinity. The Western Church would be the Roman Catholic Church, the Protestant churches, uh, all of those largely see God, and it's true, as judge and the matter of sin as forgiveness. It's true. But the Eastern Church, this would be the Orthodox churches, they see it a little differently. They, they do believe God is the judge of the earth, but that the ministry of Jesus is that he comes as a physician to heal us. That's a pretty remarkable difference. That if I understand that through the ministry of Jesus as he enters this sin-sick world and his blood and life are there to heal me, not just forgive me, not just forgive me, but to heal me, that this understanding that God is able then to work in our hearts and lives uh, for this matter of, of, uh, of being healed. Now for Wesley, for Wesley, he cannot, I guess I thought here, I, I just, I just want to, in this, in this matter, that he believed that, that God's work was to heal us, was to bring life. Remember Jesus said, I've come that you might have forgiveness? Life. Why? You don't have it. I need to heal you. I, you got to have an infusion of life. And so Wesley understands that holiness is demonstrated or expressed in love. And so for him, I'm hurrying through here. Wesley believed that, you already saw that. For Wesley, obedience cannot be the ultimate expression of holiness. Now, this is where it changes, Stuart, in my judgment, in the American experience with the Church of God, the holiness movements, Obedience was always the ultimate expression of holiness. Now, why do I say that? Because Wesley understands that one can obey for various reasons. For instance, a person can obey out of fear. Okay? Out of fear. Now, what's the problem with that? If I'm obeying out of fear, who am I mostly concerned about? Myself. Now, my problem is self. So we don't want to do anything that generates energy in that area, right? So I could obey only out of fear, which would be completely selfishly motivated. I don't want to go to hell. Now that's a good thing. But to, but to, but, but to allow that to stand and say obedience, just obedience, obedience. Say, well, no, wait a minute. Are you obeying because of fear? Wesley said when before he had his heart really warmed, he he said he believed that he had the faith of a slave or a servant. He obeyed God out of slavish fear said, I had this, the spirit of the servant. After <clears throat> Aldersgate, we talked about, he said, I had the spirit of the son. I obeyed because I love God. Now, <clears throat> let's talk about another one. <clears throat> so, obedience cannot be the ultimate expression. Another reason, what if I obey because there's some promise of reward? What's the, huh? Same thing. Self. I want the goodies. Right? I, I want to I obey because I'll get something. Self, still at the center. Okay? How about <clears throat> I obey out of conformity so the group won't think I'm a bad guy? Self. This is where Wesley is a genius in this area. He's got to get to the bottom of that. I never had anybody help me to say, now wait a minute, obedience is not the most important thing. Why are you obeying? Why are you obeying? 
What's the purpose? Is it self-centered? Remember, <clears throat> there was a guy in the Bible, I'll give you, there was a guy in the Bible that said to his father, I've never disobeyed you. Remember who he was? The older son, the older brother. Yeah, yeah do you? So, then effectively, our moral actions from a changed heart aren't even actually obedience. Explain that. <laughs> We're just doing what comes naturally from the pure love of God. I think that's where Wesley's trying to drive at. <clears throat> He's trying to say that, <clears throat> that real obedience, if you want to go to obedience, is because of the love of God that's been shed into our heart out of gratitude. I, this may be why, you know, in Matthew 7, when, when Jesus says, you know, I was hungry and you fed me, blah, 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 and the righteous say, when did we do that? They weren't that conscious of it. See, they weren't calculating. Like Jesus said, I was hungry and you fed me. I was naked and you clothed Now they're having some question. When did we do that? We don't, we don't remember doing anything like that. Now a calculating person, oh, I remember I did that on Thursday and I did it. So, so, right, so Wesley's trying to press us and help us understand that, that, the, that, that the unique expression, holiness cannot be understood simply as obedience. There are too many different reasons and ways that obedience occurs. If obedience occurs correctly, it's only because love has occurred. Yeah. yeah. So, in a sense, you're saying it's what is the driving force for us to be obedient? Right. Yeah. Now, here's where I got hung up too, as well, be because I, through nobody's fault, I'm not blaming anybody, but I grew up in a tradition that made me think that if I would do this, God would love me. So I was working to get Him to love me instead of working out of being loved, which was a train wreck for me. Yeah, it was a train wreck. Um, I remember I was a pastor in a church of about 1,000 people in Texas, in Houston. I was 28, 29 years old, working like crazy. And I came home one day and I said to Becky, I think I gotta go to seminary. And she said, why is that? I said, I hate God pretty much. <laughs> I hate him. Can't stand him. I've had it. I've been trying to earn his affection, his love, and I'm done. And I did. I resigned. Ran off to seminary. Tried to figure it out. <laughs> Met Mr. Wesley. Not really Mr. Wesley. Don't think I'm not, not, I'm not channeling here. <laughs> but so this, <clears throat> this idea. So it can be fear that's self-centered. It can be a promise that's self-centered. Just like the older son and, and, and Luke... 15, he said to his dad, I never disobeyed you one time. What was wrong with him? Right here. He was a perfect example of obedience. But it didn't make any difference. Or conformity. So holiness cannot be understood simply as sinlessness. Because that would simply be saying what it isn't. If I, if I said to Lee, what kind of truck you got? Well, it's not a Dodge. Okay, but it, it, well, it's not a Chevy either. Okay. At some point, he's got to tell me what it is, right? Or I'm not going to know. You can't say that holiness is sinlessness because you're saying, that's what I don't do anymore. So Wesley has this understanding. He, he said it this way. Wesley, I don't know if this is on your um, deal. Let's see here. Wesley, Wesley said it this way. Uh, his most succinct description of this was love excluding sin. Love excluding sin. Try to explain that. That the love we have for God excludes loving those other things. That doesn't mean you don't love your family. doesn't mean you don't love to go on a vacation. Doesn't mean, it, it means that the love of God is excluding these other things. Not by force of don't do that or you're going to get in trouble. No, David Siemens at Asbury Seminary said this, that the love of God has ruined me for sin. 
I'll never forget him saying that. The love of God has ruined me for sin. And so it's this understanding of this kind of excluding. Now, yeah. Um, the parable of the rich young ruler has always sort of uh-huh. bothered me. <laughs> uh, is, this what, is that what this is? Well, I, yeah, I think, I think Jesus, at least in that example, seems to be he's having to excise something out of that guy's heart. He's followed all the rules. Followed all the rules. And then says, go give up everything. Yeah. Apparently, this, Jesus didn't say this to everybody. He said to him that, that there is the needing of an excising of that. And I, further, I'd say it this way, Stuart. I think there's more than that too. This guy has set himself up by saying, good teacher, what must I do? So Jesus is responding to him to say, okay, you want to do something? Let's do this. See how serious you are about this. I think Jesus is calling this guy out to say, you think it's doing. You think it's doing. Now, I think Jesus is being serious with him. But there's something in this guy that has got to get excised out of him to follow. Because he's done everything right. Yeah. Is that sort of like anyone who loves their mother or brother? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, a lot a lot of American Christianity, you know, never has never used the language of Jesus, you know. Accept him into your heart. Well, where's that in the New Testament? You know, something like that. They, they don't use the language that Jesus used to follow me. You know, this is going to take where your loyalty and your determination to follow me is is everything. What I got to hurry here. This this last one. I think I've got this on here. I also love is the health of the soul and the full exertion of all its powers the perfecting of all of its faculties. That's on uh, D, toward the end, number D. And if you recall, <clears throat> um, this idea of love is the health of the soul. When, you're, when love is taking over our hearts, we're healthy. We're, we're created the way God wanted us to be. Where love now is the reigning affection, the reigning desire in our heart. Uh, if you want to, if you really want to dig in this, I, and I think this is where the, the difficulty is. A guy named Thomas Chalmers wrote a book, and it's on your list here at the very end. I, I highly recommend it. It's called uh, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And this is Wesley's idea. Chalmers is a about 100, about 100 years before Wesley. And he writes this book, and his contention is this. You cannot get a man or a woman to give up something on the threat of punishment or trying to convince them it's wrong. There has to be a new affection that takes the place of this one. And his entire thesis is that if God can get our heart right, heart right, our behavior is going to follow. And so it's the expulsive power of a new affection. It expels lesser values. I, quick example. Um, at the university where I used to teach, I'd cut up with some of the athletes and we'd be in the line and say, hey, man, you have a Coke? No. What? Coke is good, man. Tastes good. You like a Coke. Nope. Don't want it. Well, come on. It's not against the law to drink a Coke. Have one. I don't want one. Why don't you want one, man? Because I'm playing a sport, and if I drink that, it causes my performance to be a little bit compromised. So I said, oh, so you you love something more than that Coke, don't you? That love for that sport has expelled and organized 
every other activity in your life. Yeah. That's what Jesus is supposed to do. His love for us and our love for Him is supposed to expel and organize every other affection. And that's Chalmers' thesis. You can't talk people out of doing stuff because it's wrong. You can't force them out of it by fear. Something has to take its place. A greater affection. A great, that's why Wesley again says, love is the health of the soul. It is the full exertion of all its power. So I, I got to get to this because we got to apply this. How do we experience this in real time? Now, Wesley was asked on lots of occasions <clears throat> about this matter of entire sanctification or, or, or perfect love. That was his phrase, perfect love, because he wanted to keep it straight on that. Story. He didn't want it to just be behavior, 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 behavior. He wanted to say love, love, where love is perfected. Love is brought to completion. Love is full in our heart. So they ask him, so how do you experience this in daily? Or how do you experience this in real time? He said this, most people don't experience this until shortly before death. Now, why is that? There's no more time to do any bad stuff. Well, and what, 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 yeah, no more time to do bad stuff. How focused do you think a person is on God if they're close to death? Very. Nothing matters much, does it? You're not worrying about your 401k unless you're concerned about your family. But, but you're dialed in. And Wesley would say this. He said, this typically happens. But he said, we have multiple examples of people who before death have experienced this. He is saying this. If it can happen then, it can happen now by faith in the work of the Holy Spirit. And so he taught and said to his Methodist preachers all the time, preach this, proclaim this, continually try to awaken people to say, this love of God can be poured out into our hearts in a way that brings this to fruition in our life. So he's, he, he exhorted his Methodist preachers to encourage people to enter. Next week we're going to talk about this, or it's going to be talked about. Uh, David Watson has written a bunch of books on this matter about holiness. It's what is the genius of how people actually entered into this now, in their daily life now. Watson's done a lot of research, and he said it's this. It was the small group ministry where people came together every week and confessed their sins and confessed their failures and prayed for one another and supported one another, that it was that small band meeting that caused people to grow in holiness. In America, we all do this by ourselves. Wesley believed it could happen now. Press in. As they met together every week to confess their sins, to share where they had failed, to have be prayed for over it, to pray, how can we help you? It was the genius of Wesleyan Revival. So how do we experience it? I'm going to give you several things here real quick. Multiple fillings of the Holy Spirit. Um, it seems to me in the New Testament, on a couple of features, in Ephesians 5.18, maybe the most famous one, says this, be being filled with the Holy Spirit. Be, be, it's not one time, it's continual. Be, being filled. I read that every morning that I wake up. I don't know about you, but I can get filled with all kinds of stuff. I get filled with anxiety on a regular basis. I get filled with other attentive things that I got to get done before the day's over. I get filled with concerns about how am I doing. And I have to just recalibrate. And just say, now on this day, I ask you to fill me with your Holy Spirit. Now, I think there's some other evidence in that. If you'll look at the book of Acts later, 
in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. The same people that are filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, in Acts 4, after they run into the Jews after a while have a problem, it says again, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. This constant filling. This saying, I, I need the filling for today. I, I need God to fill me. Now, again, what does that mean, Cliff? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> it's this openness to understand I don't have the resources for my life. It's this openness to understand I need power here that I don't have. It doesn't mean that I'm going to feel something necessarily. It doesn't mean that I'm not going to have problems. It means it's a recognition that I know, hey, I don't have the horsepower to do this. I don't have the ability to be involved in this kind of strength. So it's first of all, to be open, to be filled with the Holy Spirit on a day-to-day basis. For us to realize our need for the Holy Spirit. But I want to give you this one, and we make a couple minutes here is this. Know and experience God's love. If I understand this, and I've, you know, tried to study this for some time, but I want you to turn with me, if you will, to Ephesians. Real quick. This isn't a self-help thing. This isn't try harder. This isn't discipline. This isn't you know, lock yourself up in a room and pray as long as you can. Paul, in Ephesians chapter 3, makes this dramatic statement. It, it, ought, to, it ought to shake you up a little bit. And it, he, he writes in chapter 3, I'll, I'll begin um, at, at verse, I'm going to just start um, at verse 14. For this reason, because of his ministry to the Gentiles, I bow my knees before the Father, whom every family in heaven or earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the rich of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Paul's praying. I'm praying for you. You're, you're already followers of Jesus. I'm praying for you for this. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith and you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ. Now slow down here. To know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that. Now, I'm reading a numeric standard, and this, this is the little, you see that? Is that next word that or so? Okay, here's the purpose. When you see the word that, it's hina in Greek. It means it's a purpose statement. This, so this can happen. So I'm praying that you'll know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up, what? To the measure of all the fullness of God. That's Wesley's holiness. That you would know the love of Christ and you would be filled to the all the fullness of God. That sounds nuts. But this is Wesley's understanding that when the love of God, when we comprehend, understand it, we are then filled with the fullness of God. Does that shock you? Paul, Wesley would say, pray this. God, oh God, on your knees maybe, that I would under, know with all the saints the length and breadth and height and depth to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge so that I can be filled up to all the fullness of God. And I love the way Paul ends this because I'm standing there going, that's nuts. Watch what he says. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all you can ask or think by the power that works within us. So this isn't you. This is God. That by all the power that works within you, 
that you would know the love of God, which surpasses knowledge. Isn't that great? I pray this prayer often for myself. I just pray, God, I, I've got to know that. Okay? Now flip quick to 1 Thessalonians. Over a few chapters. If Go to your table of contents. That's the easiest way to find. I think I can find it. I may not be able to find it. This is, this is Wesley's understanding. Uh, chapter 3, verse 11. Chapter 3, verse 11. Now may our God and Father Himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people so that, there it is again, like Ephesians, purpose here, so that He may establish your hearts without blame, what? In holiness before our God and Father come in the coming of our Lord Jesus. So he says, I'm, I'm praying that you'll abound in love more and more for all the people so that God then can establish your hearts without blame in holiness. How's he do that? Love. Love. And so Paul, Paul has said this on two occasions. There are other ones here. Wesley is constantly driving at the point of this. And so that last quote that's on your list, I'm not going to leave you with some duty to do here. Look what, look what Wesley said here. <clears throat> we must love God before we can be holy at all. This being the root of all holiness. Now we cannot love God till we know He loves us. That's the piece that I missed as a kid. I thought I could love God. Well, because I was scared to death of it. Or, or I could love God because I knew everybody would think something's wrong with me if I didn't. Or I could love God because at least I'd get to go to heaven. Hear all those? That's self. That's fear, self, reward, self, conformity. So I did that for years in my life. And when I read this in Wesley's work, you could have blown me over with a feather. When I said, really? Somebody finally said what I think I know by experience, that I can't love God on my own until I know He loves me. 1 John 4, 19. We love because we're really good people. Right? That's what John said. No, we love because He first loved us. So what's the answer here? How do you experience it? You have to dig in and dial in and Seek to understand the love that God has for us. This isn't get more disciplined. This isn't try harder. This is saying, God, do something to my heart. Work in my soul. Help my brain, whatever needs to be done. But I need to understand your love that I can be filled with all the fullness of God so that I can be established in my heart without blame in holiness. This is Wesley's program. You can't love God until you're convinced He loves you. So when students would come to me, talk to me, <laughs> Kathy was one of them. When students would come to me and say they're, they're having trouble in their life, I'd say, instead of saying, what are you doing? they say, well, I'm doing this. I'd, okay, let's talk. Why are you doing that? You know why? Your love's gotten disordered. We got we to gotta lean into how much God loves you. See, when I told somebody I was doing something wrong when I was growing up, they tried to scare me to death. Well, you know, you keep doing this, you're going to go to hell. You keep doing this, you're not really a Christian. Anybody get that but me? Nobody said, wait a minute, this is a disturbance in understanding how much God loves you, Cliff. You've forgotten, haven't you? Let's go back at the gospel and look at Jesus and how he's poured his life out for you. Let's, let's go look and see what he said about that he would never leave you or forsake you. So how does that look now? 
Boy, it starts taking all the shine off that other stuff. And saying, man, if, if he loves me like that, if he is faithful to me like that, this doesn't look nearly as attractive as it used to. And that's back to Chalmers' idea, the expulsive power of a new affection. So you, we can experience this as we understand God's love. Now, I'll end with this. John Owen, who was a great Puritan, he and Wesley had different kind of theological commitments. But Owen said the love of God is, is a bit like this. When the sun is out, all the stars are gone. Are they gone? Oh, they're still there. There's just something that overpowered them. As long as the sun's out, the stars are there, but they can't be seen. And he made it this statement, Jesus is that great light that overcomes all lesser lights. When we stand in the glory of his life, when we that, then that's all that matters. So the answer isn't try harder. The answer isn't get more disciplined. The answer isn't learn more stuff. It's to lean in. So I'm going to ask you to think about this, at least application-wise, to take that prayer in Ephesians 3, 14 to 23, and on your knees, however you want to do that, or sometime of a day, pray it. I have a, an alarm on my phone at noon. I have an alarm on my I got to go. I have an alarm on my phone at noon to pray that prayer or the other prayer in Ephesians 1, 15 to 20. Just remind me. Remind me. So remember, Wesley knew, knew holiness to be perfect love. That love that took the heart over and conformed it and reformed it. That behavior, it'll get there. But that's not where we start. Okay, I gotta let you go. It's time. So I'm glad to stay and talk and, and all but